Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Right, as I say, happy St George's Day. Or oh, if you're an EU flag-waving member of the governing classes, happy St George was Turkish Day. To which I say, my God, St George wasn't English. Next, you'll be telling us that the dragon wasn't real. Or English. And that actually, had George slain an actual dragon, he'd have disrupted Britain's biodiversity or something like that. You see, folks, to some, England is full of Brexit-voting gammons. So it can't be possible that its patron saint could be someone like this figure, who, when ordered by an emperor to begin the systematic persecution of Christians, actually refused to do so. St George bravely remained dedicated to his Christian faith. For that, he was tortured and eventually beheaded, paving the way for this man to become a Christian martyr. It's odd that Scottish patriotism is seen as fine and dandy folks, with St Andrew's Day afforded bank holiday status and St David's Day in Wales. The saltire is ubiquitous in Scotland, yet you fly our national flag or suggest we ought to celebrate Englishness, and it'll be suggested that to celebrate Englishness is either racist or imperialist, even though most of us reckon Englishness has absolutely naff all to do with race. And that imperialism that they speak of, that they say our flag represents, it was very much a UK-wide phenomenon. Empire was the story of Scotland just as much as it was England's. Our chattering classes failed to recognise that in viewing everything through the tedious lens of race and identity, they are the same as the extreme, tiny minority who argue that you cannot be English if you're not white. And folks, have these people asked themselves why or why, if England is such a home of racism, why are record numbers of illegal immigrants scrambling for dinghies to get in to our country? Ask yourselves that. Because I think we ought, at this point, to reject those who suggest that Englishness ought to be rejected. St George's Day ought to be a bank holiday, if you ask me. We ought to play our own anthem when our national team is playing in whatever sport, perhaps celebrating England's green and pleasant land via the anthem Jerusalem. We ought to fly our flag and be proud to do so, not embarrassed. You're no less British by celebrating what we've done as a collective, but there's no reason not to enjoy the inclusivity that I enjoyed in the Scouts on St George's Day, with a parade and flag-waving and all of those things that bring us together. Why should we be ashamed of that? I say, let's re reject the divisive Emily Thornberrys of our nation. It was George Orwell, another brilliant George, who said that almost any English intellectual would feel more ashamed of standing to attention during God Save the King than of stealing from a poor box. How very depressingly true.
We ought to remember that when we hear that England is xenophobic, intolerant, and ought to know its place within our family of nations as an embarrassed, poorer part of it, we are a big player on the world stage. Fair and very welcome, and it's why so many want to come here. That ought to be celebrated on at least one day of the year. So I say, come on, Boris, let's put England and St George back on the map. And I'm not afraid to say it, right? I'm English, and I'm damn well proud to be so. Sneer all you want from behind your copy of the new European. Happy St George's Day, everybody. Now, folks, I think it's fair to say it's been a busy month for the Church of England. It's caused quite a lot of controversy. Only last week, GB News' very own Calvin Robinson accused the Church of England of holding him back on his route to priesthood due to his conservative views. Also in his Easter sermon, Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby said the policy of sending some asylum seekers who arrive in the UK illegally to Rwanda cannot stand the judgment of God. In response, it's reported that Boris Johnson told his MPs that senior clergy had been less vociferous in their condemnation of Vladimir Putin than of plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. But do we really need the Church of England and the government at loggerheads, two very important parts of state, let's not forget? Or has the church lost its way and had its day? Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Dr. Gavin Ashenden, who is a former Anglican bishop who converted to Catholicism. He was also an honorary chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen and Reverend James Treasure from the Top Church in Dudley. Thank you very much for the company of both of you there. Dr. Gavin, can I start with you, please? Would you say over recent times, we've been inundated with news from the church. It's been front and centre of much of the news agenda. Would you argue that this has exposed the church and shown that the church really has, the established church that is, lost its way? Well, well that's a complicated question because it depends what you mean by the church and, and then you know what way we're going. But certainly in my lifetime, the most of the public pronouncements that the Church of England has made about the political situation have betrayed a, an allegiance to the left. Um, there's a complicated link between politics and Christianity. Um, there's a very real one because we want our society to reflect Christian virtues uh, and moral uh, values like the rule of law and moral accountability and, and uh, the ordering of society. But it's when the church, particularly when its leaders, begin to make decisions or political decisions or interventions that come from one side rather than the other, that then you have to ask yourself the question of whether they're really playing politics uh, with a sort of covering of, uh, I think Rod Little called it a patina, a patina of religion, or whether they're really doing Christianity. Jesus kept out of politics uh, almost uh, all the time in the New Testament, and it's one of the rules that Christians ought to face if they can. Yeah, Reverend James, what would you say to that? Because I know, I, you know, as an Anglican, I felt very ostracised almost, despite the fact that Brexit... Was Anglicans were the biggest Brexit voting group in the country. And despite that, it felt like the upper echelons were completely out of step with actually what, what the people that actually still put the bums on seats in our churches in our country. 
Yeah, I think um, it's it's fair to say over that issue, I think there was a distinction between uh, perhaps the senior clergy, as it were, and the uh, and, and the other people in the pew. Um, but I think actually the church, and particularly Archbishop Justin Welby, has it's his right and his duty in a way to to speak politically. He sits in the House of the Lords. And, and I think often the church can be a critical friend to the state. So um, we're, sometimes we're, we, we seem a little bit critical. Other times I hope we can provide the support and the care uh, that the state needs when it's, in our eyes, doing the, the right and correct thing. So, and as for Jesus and politics, well, I don't think you can separate them. I think Jesus was, was quite involved in politics of his day, uh, whether, whether we like it or not. Gavin, I'll let you come back on that, but I do want to ask you, do you, the House of Lords, that's a, a sticky subject for some people. Some people think it's very inappropriate for the church to have a role in our legislature, especially the unelected legislature. Where do you stand on that? Yes, well, in case we lose it, can we go back to Jesus for a moment? Because our, our opinions are all well and good, but, but let's just agree on the foundations. Uh, there were lots of people who wanted to bring Jesus into politics. There was a huge nationalist movement. Uh, there was an imperialist um, uh, invasion of Israel. And uh, right throughout the Gospels, Jesus sidestepped and kept out of the political agenda. One marvelous moment, he said, you keep your allegiance to Caesar by paying taxes, but you put God first. The trouble is, whenever the, and, and he came to save souls, to, sit, to get people to heaven and away from hell. But in our, in our culture particularly, the church has got very embarrassed about heaven and hell. You'll never, ever hear, I mean, hardly, hard to use an absolute like that. You'll hardly ever hear an, an Anglican clergyman or bishop or archbishop talk about salvation and escaping from hell. And, and if you don't have that, then you're going to naturally find uh, a greater attraction in politics. And for the whole of my lifetime, I cannot think of a single archbishop, and maybe not even a bishop, who has said anything coming from the right, not one, ever. So you have to ask whether or not uh, the Church of England is, um, is, is institutionally uh, left of centre. And then in terms of uh, sitting in the House of Lords, well, it's a huge privilege and an enormous responsibility. And it simply means that the stakes for keeping out of party politics are very, very much higher. And unfortunately, I don't, I mean, certainly during my lifetime, the Church of England has failed the test of non-partisanship all the time. And if James could give me, I don't know, one or two archbishops who've taken a right or centre viewpoint and publicly upbraided a left-wing prime minister, then I'll apologise, but I don't think he can. Yeah, James, I'll put that to you. Uh, I have to be honest, I'm not an expert on the archbishops of the Church of England of history. Uh, so, I, you know, I can't answer that question. You, as a former bishop, you're probably more uh, knowledgeable of our archbishops, you know. Yeah, well, uh, James, let me put a question to you then. As far as the Church of England's concerned, a lot of people also felt very disillusioned during the pandemic with, with the archbishop putting his hands up, holding his hands up and saying, actually, I think I was a little bit too fast to tell people, to tell actually priests, for example, that they can't be in their churches, that they shouldn't be in their churches. And actually, when people needed spiritual guidance and direction the most, the Church of England wasn't there for them. And they're asking, what is the point in the Church of England these days? So I think with the pandemic and the lockdown situation, I think I, I agree with half of what you've said. Um, I think it was a shame we weren't in our buildings. But to be fair, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew, no one had been here before. No one knew how the virus was going to spread. So 
I think there's an element of erring on the side of caution and providing some leadership, not just for the churches across England, across all the different denominations, but perhaps for those with other faiths as well, and what the right response was at the time. Again, I'm not a spokesperson for Archbishop Welby, I don't even know him, but I know he's expressed some regret at that as well, acknowledged perhaps we could have opened a bit quicker. Um, we were still available. We did lots of work with Food Bank. We did lots of work with delivering food parcels to particularly to families who were struggling in that time. And and a lot of things that happened at church just went online. So the Church of England was very present, but just like all of us, we had to you know get used to Zoom and being uh, having an online presence. Actually, it shifted the church to that. Now, it's not the same as being in the building, not the same as corporate worship, but I think in the circumstances, probably everybody gave it their best shot and for what we just didn't know what was going to happen. So we didn't completely abandon uh, the nation at this time. We were reaching out in different ways and perhaps more practical ways than we've ever had done before. Right. I mean, Gavin, I had to, I found myself in the bizarre scenario. At that, I think it was the first lockdown when the Church of England closed its doors before the Catholic Church in England did. And I found myself taking communion in a Catholic church. But putting that to one side, the Catholic Church isn't much better, is it, as far as politics are concerned? The Pope spends a lot of time waxing lyrical about climate change. Well, I just want to say, I think James has done a very good job defending the Church of England. He's been very generous. And, and, and of course, a lot of what he said was true in terms of uh, the way in which people in the Church tried their hardest. Um, although that doesn't take anything away from the problem of political bias. In answer to your question about the Catholics, well, you're quite right. Uh, to begin with, uh, the Catholic bishops had a very strong left-wing advisor on their, in, their, in their, their group, and he terrified them into closing their doors, and so they took his advice. And then by the time the first wave was over, they realised they'd been bamboozled by a left-wing uh, social working professional, and they opened their doors again. At, at least they did it. Um, but you're quite right that the, West, the church in the West has become terrified of actually being authentically Christian. And it's a bit of a paradox that we should have St. George as our patron saint. When St. George was ordered by the powers of the day, the political powers, uh, to, to abandon Christianity and to imprison and to persecute Christians, he refused and he paid with it for his life. Christians have to step up to the mark. Either we believe in Jesus, either we believe in heaven and hell and salvation, and we disbelieve in the power of the state to order our conscience, or we don't. And I'd like to see a bit more courage of the convictions in the church. I'm very pleased to say the Catholic Church showed more of it uh, than that. It just showed some of it. And for that, I want to compliment it. Uh, James, just finally, can I ask, speaking of St George, do you feel proud to be English? Um, I'm happy, yeah, happy and proud to be English, but that's not my first identity. My first identity is a follower of Jesus who actually transcends nations and, and followers of him. We, we recognise them in every nation. And so really um, happy to be English, of course I am. But my real identity is found far beyond that uh, in Christ himself. Gavin, the same, briefly, if you would, the same question to you. Yeah, great answer. I agree with, with James completely. Um, although I'd go further and say that um, there are wonderful things about being an English Christian. And um, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that the earliest Christians came here within, within decades of Jesus' life and death. And they worked very hard to bring so many of the virtues, uh, moral virtues and social virtues that have made life worth living in this country. Uh, I'm, I'm proud both to be a Christian and to be English, and I'd like them to inform each other as richly as possible. 
Well, a beautiful way to end that discussion. Thank you very much to the two of you. Dr. Gavin Ashenden there and Reverend James Treasure, thank you very much for joining Real Britain. Plenty more to come on the show. Next, we'll be talking about ferries on the Clyde in Scotland. Ferries that are years late and two and a half times over budget. It's 2.27 and we're going back to basics now. Scotland's Auditor-General has called for a fuller review of the building of two new controversial ferries on the Clyde. Ferries that are years late and two and a half times, two and a half times over budget. But in a recent report from Audit Scotland, they weren't able to review all the documentation relating to the awarding of a contract for these boats. So just what the hell is going on with Scotland's democracy? Here to explain all of this to me is Scotland commentator Jamie Blackett, who joins me down the line. Hiya, Jamie. Jamie, could you start off by just telling us what, what, how did this start? Because it seems to have just snowballed. It has snowballed, Darren. And in fact, um, this weekend, there are no ferries to Arran. They've had to uh, scrabble around to find other boats from somewhere else to get people across to the island. A critical time of year, of course, the tourists are wanting to go there and uh, people can't get across to the mainland for hospital appointments or anything like that. So it's a really serious issue. And this has been going on now for about a decade. Uh, it was recognised that the existing ferries uh, serving uh, Arran and the other one as was serving uh, the Outer Hebrides were in need of replacement. And that's why the Scottish government let a contract to build these new ferries. But they were advised by the civil servants not to award the contract to Ferguson Marine, this uh, shipyard on the Clyde that then went bust. And <laughs> the big issues now is, is who overruled the civil servants and insisted on that contract being let and the big suspicion is that it was Nicola Sturgeon herself. Uh, she, with lots of characteristic head bobbing and uh, obfuscation, uh, said that she didn't say, don't go ahead. Uh, whether that means she did say go ahead, uh, we've yet to reveal. The typical politician Steve response, Boyle, isn't it, somewhat? Sorry? It's a typical politician's response, I think many of my it's viewers would, would, would believe. Well, it's quite typical, I have to say, of, of Nicola Sturgeon and of this secrecy in Scotland. I mean, if this was anywhere else in the world, particularly in England, uh, you would have SNP backbenchers jumping up and down saying, what the hell is going on here? And you would have the Scottish media all over it like a rash. Well, they have just started to ask some of the difficult questions. But I think it wouldn't have got to this uh, stage, quite frankly, if yeah. GB News had been around five or six years ago. Uh, yeah. BBC Scotland and STV have been asleep at the wheel. They haven't really been holding the Scottish government to account. And democracy and, uh, needs scrutiny, right? Democracy needs scrutiny. That's a fundamental point. But it's very yeah. important, I think, isn't it, to say that First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, of course, denies that there's been any kind of government cover-up after a key document that actually explained when a controversial contract was awarded 
without a full refund guarantee can't be found and what the government yeah. will reflect on any lessons that they need to learn. That's what's been said. How do you think this can be resolved then? Because I think you're right that the press have been pretty much asleep at the wheel for a number of years now, and it does seem that there isn't the scrutiny or sunlight applied, which, of course, is the best disinfectant as far as democracy is concerned. What needs to happen? Well, I think in the case of... Uh, these two ferries, uh, it, the Auditor General needs to really get in there and um, get to the bottom of it. We had this extraordinary Putin-esque phrase from Nicola Sturgeon when she said she she regrets the loss of the, the critical documents that uh, would have given the answers that we all Crave. Um, I mean, it, it, it appears that the SNP have, frankly, put everything through the shredder that could give us the answers that we need on this. Uh, there's going to have to be uh, a full inquiry. There is a parliamentary committee uh, chaired by Richard Leonard, the former Scottish Labour leader. He's pointed out that uh, not uh, creating an audit trail for a major government procurement project like this is in itself actually a criminal offence. Uh, the former uh, Labour um, First Minister, Lord McConnell, Jack McConnell, has, has also come out and said pretty much the same thing. So I think this lack of transparency is going to have to be addressed. It may well be that uh, criminal charges may be yeah. brought against and of course, Scottish Lord Nicola Sturgeon, she does, the First Minister does maintain that the government are going to learn lessons they need to from this and that there was absolutely no cover-up whatsoever. But Jamie, <laughs> thank you very much for you shining some sunlight on that issue for us. That was Scotland commentator Jamie Blackett. Thank you very much for your time. Welcome back to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Now it's time for Grime Watch, a time to look at what you at home have been saying about the biggest stories of the week. This year marks the BBC's 100th year in operation. They've released a tele-advert where they claim to be our BBC. But I say you're not our BBC, though, are you? You hate much of what we stand for. That's why we are turning off from you in daily droves. Well, unsurprisingly, plenty of you have got in touch about this one. Angela says, it's the anti-British corporation, doesn't represent us or our country, only those with left-leaning views. Couldn't agree more. Peter called me out and said, have you ever considered that it's your values that have shifted? Well, not really, no. Josephine said, it stopped being British people's BBC a long time ago. I think that's absolutely right. Roy also got involved and said, a hundred years, at first it probably represented a balanced opinion across the board, but not any longer. It is sad. And I agree with that. I think it is sad. I think the BBC could have actually represented the views of those up and down our country, but I'm afraid it doesn't want to do that. It likes the views of those around Islington dinner tables. And finally, the final word goes to James, who said, the BBC is great value. For only 43p per day, you get an incredible amount of quality content. 
Well, folks, I don't know about you, but if the BBC is such cracking value for money, put it to the market, right? Tell us all that we get to decide whether or not we want to subscribe to it without the threat of prison. Let's see how good value for money it is then. Now, folks, we're going to have to agree to disagree with James there, but it is now 2.40 and it's time for Scrap Reform Keep. Today, we're putting self-driving cars through their paces. As it stands, there are no self-driving cars on UK roads, but the Department for Transport says the first vehicles capable of driving themselves could be ready for use later this year. I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Jim Holder, who's the editorial director of What Car. Jim, how would you feel about stopping at a red light and looking in your rearview mirror and seeing a driver slumped back, their hands not on the wheel, watching the telly? Yeah, I think it's a little bit disconcerting, uh, and I think it's a, a journey that we all have to go on, if I'm brutally honest. Uh, I think we all know the challenges of driving a car uh, safely at the best of times. Uh, and handing over control to a, essentially a computer or a set of computers uh, is definitely something to give uh, pause for thought. Now, you know, on one hand, we'll all happily get on an aeroplane uh, and, and let it fly itself uh, without a second thought. But on our roads, uh, it definitely is a, a cause for concern. Mm. So how does this technology actually work then in practice? How will it actually be able to get someone from A to B safely? Yeah, so many of us today have uh, systems on our cars, perhaps that keep you a set distance away from the car in front on the motorway. They'll nudge the steering wheel to make sure that you stay in lane uh, as well. They can perhaps even sense when it's raining and, and do things like uh, the wipers. So cars are quite capable of reacting to the environments around them. What this is taking is some that, those small bits of technology uh, and, and combining them together to create a fully self-driving car. So it's using radar, LIDAR, which are more advanced forms of radar, to keep a sense around what's happening in the car. Uh, and particularly, it's reading the lines on the roads, the signs around the speed limits, and it's trying to respond to what it can sense cars around you are doing. But it's important to say, you know, this, is, this technology is not faultless. It is still learning uh, how to operate. I've been in a self-driving car when it has failed to read the road you know, a few years ago in a test track in a, a, a very carefully controlled environment, but it can go wrong. You can get snow or mud covering those radar and LIDAR sensors that can obscure what's happening. And that's why in this interim stage, they're saying the driver or the, the occupant of the vehicle has to be ready to take back control. And I think that really is where the bigger concern is, is this middle stage of introducing this technology where it's sort of relying on a hybrid of the occupant and the technology to, to respond. And if you're watching television, how quickly can you respond? You know, they're, they're saying that they will only use these systems at lower speeds, up to 37 miles an hour. Well, at 37 miles an hour, you're traveling about 16 and a half meters a second. And that's quite a long way, particularly, mm. you know, if you're in a built up urban environment where there are bikes, there are pedestrians, there are all sorts of uh, sort of random factors to take into account. You know, we hear every two minutes, or at least it seems like it, about uh, Russian spyware or Chinese malware, these things that none of us actually really fully understand what they mean. Is there a risk of attempts to hack this sort of technology that could actually be 
rolled out throughout Britain to try and an attempt, I guess, to improve road safety by reducing human error. Is there a risk of these things being hacked somewhere down the line? Or am I just being a total, you know, Luddite here? No, I think it's a very good question. I think uh, you raise one of the main positives of this technology, and that is theoretically, at least, it should reduce accidents. But absolutely, one of the negatives is the risk of hacking. A couple of years ago in the States, uh, a couple of activists managed to do just that and drive a car uh, autonomously down a highway, uh, having hacked it. And of course, that, that is a major concern. Uh, you know, in, in when I was a child, the concern was about your car being stolen and hotwired and driven off. Now, in, in the future, we're going to have absolutely this concern. And you're going to have to rely on the car makers staying one step ahead of the criminals. And you have to say, you know, that's an incredibly hard thing to do. They haven't yeah. managed it even in, with the theft of cars, let alone the hacking of them as well. Jim, on a more positive note, I don't want to be completely negative about this because I am quite excited by it as it happens. But do you think this is good news for the British economy? Just how much is the British economy suited, tailored for this sort of new emerging technology? Have we been sort of leading the world almost on allowing this technology to be tried and tested on our roads? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is perhaps the crux of, of why the government are so keen to make the changes and get on with it. Uh, this uh, technology is estimated to have a global value uh, running into the multiple trillions for the UK economy around 40 billion for the, the, the value of jobs, you know, tens of thousands, potentially, if we can get it right. And we have been leading the way, as you say, our university programs and our car manufacturers really have taken some of the leadership here. It needs huge investment for us to stay there, but it also needs us to be testing these cars on our roads and staying ahead of other nations, which are also scrabbling to get their share of the pie uh, of these trillions that are on offer if they can take the leadership. So I think that's why the government's trying to move quickly. Whether it's moving quickly enough is perhaps another, another question, because if we want to win, you can bet that we'll be fighting with every other country trying to yeah. take that leadership. Yeah. Now, Jim, the last question then is the most important one, and that is, should we scrap, should we reform, or should we indeed keep self-driving cars? I think we should keep them. Absolutely, They're, they are the future. They have many potential benefits. I think we need to be slightly sceptical uh, as to how we do that and, and keep an open mind, but a questioning mind. But absolutely, this is coming regardless of whether you like it or not. Yeah, indeed. Jim, I'm glad that we ended on a bit of a positive there because I was starting to sound like a negative Nelly. But that's Jim Holder, the editorial director of WhatCar. Thank you very much for your time. Another topic that caught my attention this week was when watching Prime Minister's questions, the Conservative MP for Don Valley, Nick Fletcher, called on the Prime Minister to introduce a Minister for Men. The position for Minister for Women was created by former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair as a means of prioritising women's issues across government. So I thought it was only right to ask in our cultural segment, is it time for a minister for men? I'm joined by feminist activist and writer Jean Hatchett and Mike Buchanan, the leader of the political party Justice for Men and Boys and the Women Who Love Them. 
Jean, can I start I with you, Darren, please? I, what do you think of this idea? Do you think it's time for men to receive a little bit more priority in government? Um, I'm sure I'm here to say no and eye roll and all of those things. But I think um, at the moment there's a really crucial thing at the, at the centre of this before we even discuss whether there can be a minister for men. And um, that's the question, what is a man? Because we're currently being put under, uh, we're seeing politicians put under pressure to, to define what a woman is. But no one's actually asking what a man is. And until we sort that question, we can't really go much further. Um, I think it's important that we address the issues for men, uh, male suicide, for example, which is which is at, at, at a terrible high and, and you know significantly higher than for women. I acknowledge that. I have concern for that. But we also have to acknowledge the issue with men, and you know we have um, a real issue with with men murdering people, but specifically men murdering women. Um, there's a, a, a rape conviction rate of of less than one percent in this country. Um, and so we have a, a high proportion of, of men who are raping women. Um, so I don't want to go down that traditional feminist route of let's just, um, when we're addressed with this, this issue of, of a minister for men, just um, smash into men. I think, you know, there are issues there to be addressed. But um, when we're talking about this, we've also got to look at, at why certain things can't happen that would solve issues for men around this question of what a man is. And so if you've got it, the case that it is unsafe for men to go into male space, then if they are wearing a dress or, or lipstick, for example, why, can't, why is that impossible? Why must they then seek refuge with um, female people in female space? And I think, you know, there, there are some issues right at the heart of this with this, this kind of um, gender identity ideology, which, which pose um, questions for both men and women. But well, until we can sort that question, we, we really can't talk about a minister for men because we don't know what men are. Yeah, I mean, that's a fundamental point. Mike, I'm assuming that you're a bloke, but how do you actually think we should go about this idea of a minister for men? Um, well, I mean, for, for, for a start, I've never heard such complete nonsense as I've just heard, even from a feminist. The, 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 um, should there be a minister for men? Of course there should. Uh, the idea of having a minister for women, and by the way, there are three ministers. There are, there's, a, there's a minister for women and equalities, a minister for women, and a minister for equalities. Uh, jobs for the girls or what? I mean, talk about non-jobs. But um, the, 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 um, the, there are so many areas where, where, where men's rights are assaulted. And I'm, I'm very pleased to be speaking with um, a woman who's, whose website tells me that she is very interested in in um, men's violence against women, um, nothing on there at all that I could see about uh, women's violence against men. And I can tell you, I'd, I'd be happy to read out uh, a few sentences, which which show that um, that um, intimate part partner violence in in heterosexual couples, in the majority of those couples, the violence is mutual. Okay, so sometimes the man starts, sometimes the woman does, but in the forty percent or so where the violence is one way, always one way, the perpetrator is twice as likely to be the woman as the man, and the victim twice as likely to be the man as the woman. And this has been known for decades. And, so, and Mike, the best place in your opinion, this is long overdue then? We should have done this years ago? Yes, I mean, the, the, I mean to have a minister for women is, 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 makes about as much sense as having a minister for rich people. 
Uh, women and girls are already some of the most privileged human beings ever to walk the planet. The idea that they need a, a, a you know, specific ministers is absurd. And the, the reason it's, it's so difficult to get a minister for men is, is that that would put um, a, a focus on, on all the many, many, many disadvantages and human rights violations that men have in this country. Right, yeah. I mean, Mike, I don't think Jean disagreed with some of the points there about the fact that men are facing a higher suicide rate, for example. Jean raised that herself. But Jean, it must but, be but, but quite there, something there... to hear from Mike there that women are the most privileged beings to walk the earth, given that right now, I think, as you rightly point out, women risk being erased from the national picture altogether. Oh, absolute nonsense. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be speaking against Mike, which is why I've laughed pretty much through the whole the whole of his segment. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of uh, it's difficult to respond to to that kind of viewpoint, because, as I said, I'm very, very sympathetic to some of the issues facing men like the largest um, uh, cancer statistics in this country are breast cancer, but the second is prostate cancer. And clearly no, we have to address cancer. issues. <laughs> I don't think it is, but, you know, um, I, I, I really can't, I can't really debate with, with somebody who is um, statistically inept. And, and I find that, you know, a bit of an insult to me because some of those statistics are, are, are being manipulated by Mike. And he's done that for many years now, but he's become a little bit of a laughing stock amongst, um, amongst most people. So, you know, 95% of perpetrators of domestic violence in jail are male. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, you cannot deny those figures. So I tried not to, um, you know, drag it into that realm, but Mike has, so, you know, his, his statistics are inaccurate. But I really think, you know, when he's talking about nonsense, what I would ask Mike, if he wants a minister for men, and I haven't said I don't want a minister for men, um, what I've said is what they perhaps ought to address as well as, um, you know, some of the issues put forward by Nick Fletcher. I'd like to know, could then a person with a vagina or a female person be a minister for men, in Mike's view? Yeah, well, Mike, what do you make of that? Because if we did have a minister for men, I wonder what you think the key role should be? What should it entail? Gene um, uh, has just raised an excellent area. Uh, there's never been a person of penis as a minister for women, has there? That's strange, isn't it? Um, but to talk, um, uh, prostate cancer could has happen, killed though, more Mike. Men. Currently, it could happen. Sorry, I tried not to interrupt. Uh, pro prostate cancer has killed more men in this country than breast cancer has killed women for two or three years. But the, the point here, and it absolutely illustrates why we need a minister for men, is that there, there is no national screening program for prostate cancer. There are two screening programs for women-specific cancers, none for men. This is, but this is exactly I think, Jean, your view, Jean, on that can is I... very much you're sympathetic to those arguments, aren't you? Correct me if I'm wrong. Can I point out that I've, um, I suffer from ovarian cancer? So, you know, I nearly died. So I'd, I'd have sympathetic with either a male or a female suffering cancer and would, would like equity of, of access to, to health care for both of those issues. Why would I not? But the point is that we are being asked to um, refer to uh, women with ovaries, um, not as women, that, that yeah. we're, we're being told that it's not OK to say the word womb and woman as a thing. And, and you know, these... I know this sounds like I'm going off on a tangent, but when you're talking about issues affecting men, then we're being asked to refer to ourselves as um, people with front holes. 
and Horrible. you know this is not okay and no. and really if we are targeting men's health issues then why is that question never being asked of men whether it's it's uncomfortable for them to be asked whether they can be pregnant or not so there's got to be this real we as feminists know unless you address the question what is a woman you cannot have any yeah. rights to well speaking of that jean speaking of that another story that caught my eye today was concerning the shadow chancellor of the duchy of lancaster angela rayner she has condemned a what she says is sexist and misogynistic article a mail on sunday article which claimed that tory mps have accused her of a basic instinct ploy sharon stone-esque to distract Boris Johnson by crossing and uncrossing her legs during debates. This post has received massive backlash. The Prime Minister's got involved and says that he deplores the misogyny directed at Angela Rayner anonymously through this article. Jean, is this, is this an example of women facing misogyny today and Mike just needs to get behind you because actually misogyny is still happening, clearly? Mike's never going to acknowledge that. And, you know, like I say, I, I don't really... <laughs> I don't expect Mike to ever change his views or, or take any kind of rational um, or balanced viewpoint on this. That's not happened over the last many years that he's been trying to... Well, what do you to... make of this article, then? Did you Were you personally offended no, by I, this, the fact that, that the male ran I, this? I heartily condemn that um, that attitude amongst the male Tory MPs that have, have tried to say that, that that's the case. I think, you know, Angela Rayner is being treated appallingly there. I think though, at the same time, that maybe this is Angela needing to recognise exactly what being female is and what that entails, because she's one of the proponents of um, the fact that trans women are women. Well, this is not happening to trans women. This is happening to a female person because of sex. And yeah, there's a deep misogyny there. There's a deep misogyny in the way that um, she, she's been represented as being less intelligent than Boris Johnson. Um, because she would need to resort to feminine wiles, if you like, to, to advocate her, her points or her politics. And so that would never happen to a man. Right. And also Mike, what's been, Mike, been you answer there. that then. That would never happen to a man. This wouldn't happen to a male politician. They wouldn't see this sort of post in the mail on Sunday about them, Dar would they? Darren, you have allowed Jean to completely derail a discussion about a minister for men by their current pet obsession. Um, I could name 16 areas where the human rights of men and boys in the UK today are, are assaulted. Um, I would very much like to hear, without talking about trans women, I'd very much like Jean to tell me areas where the human rights of, of women and girls in Britain today are assaulted. So, Mike, did you not think that that article about Angela Rayner was misogynistic in any way, think, shape or form? I, I, I think, I th no, I think people see misogyny everywhere. It is actually very rare, whereas misandry, the hatred of men and boys, is everywhere, and, and radical feminists like Jean, um, you know, uh, you know, are, are the great exemplars of that. So I wonder, Jean, can you tell me some areas? I can give you 16 areas in in a few seconds, where the human rights of men and boys are assaulted by the state today, almost always to advantage women. Can you tell me any areas where, uh, you know, without talking about trans women, where the human rights of women and girls today are assaulted? Okay, so um, as I've said before, we have um, a current um, rape where uh, rape where women are raped at a rate of about seventy-eight thousand to eighty thousand a year, Absolutely and we've rubbish. got you. Sorry, R rubbish. Seventy. Uh, I'd, like, I'd like to show your problem. viewers. Mike, you asked me a question. Like so you've got to let her answer the question. Can I speak?
So we've got um, women murdered at a rate of one every three days by men. We've got women raped by a current or former partner once every four days. We've got uh, women who are um, systematically, you know, failed by the CPS. That is a state institution, Mike. Um, you know, that, that is working for the state. Uh, such that we've got a, a rape rate, a conviction rate of less than 1%. So how can you then tell me, I, I am absolutely on board with you discussing the issues that you want to discuss, but you have to acknowledge that women are um, suffering really quite serious consequences of male violence. And if you're talking about Nick Fletcher, who is a close, um, a close colleague of Philip Davis, who filibustered a bill in 2017, he spoke for 90 minutes to prevent advances right. for women, Okay, I, I, we're going to have to leave it know, there, folks, but this, this debate could rumble on and on. But that was Jean Hatchett, the feminist activist and writer, and Mike Buchanan, leader of the political party, Justice for Men and Boys. Can I just Thank say you Darren, very much Darren, for Darren. your time. It's 2.36 and it's time for our Grilling from Grime segment. Quickfire questions to a person in a position of power. In the hot seat today, I'm delighted to say, is Connor Burns, the Tory MP for Bournemouth West and the Minister of State for Northern Ireland. Connor, thank you very much for your company today. Now, Boris Johnson returned from a successful visit, it has to be said, to India to discover that the senior Tory backbencher Steve Baker, former minister, says that the PM should be long gone and that he's sick of the cabinet sitting there fat, dumb and happy. Quite extraordinary stuff. What did you make of it? Well, I've always liked Steve. Um, I, I'm sort of reminded of the words of Lord Denning that two reasonable people can perfectly reasonably reach opposite conclusions based on the same set of facts without each surrendering their right to be considered a reasonable person. I disagree with Steve. Um, we've got some processes to go through. I still believe the Prime Minister has a huge amount to offer this country. It's only two and a bit years since he won the biggest landslide for the Conservative Party in a generation, the biggest since Margaret Thatcher in uh, 1987. I believe he deserves the opportunity to have the processes gone through, the public to see the full facts, and, and then to get back to 100% focus on delivering for the British people. Yeah, I mean, Connor, you're clearly well and truly behind the Prime Minister, but do you think it's inevitable that more MPs, especially backbenchers, are going to turn their back on Boris Johnson if further fixed penalty notices are actually issued? Well, look, colleagues are unsettled, and, and that's totally understandable. This has gone on now for a long time. But the important thing is that the Prime Minister at all times uh, has been genuine in what he told the House of Commons. He has told people uh, the facts. Now, when things have emerged subsequent to his appearance in the Commons, he has come back and updated the House. But there are three processes now. There's the Met investigation. There's then the Sue Gray final report, which will come at the conclusion uh, of the Met. And then there is the Privileges Committee process that MPs decided they wanted to enact last Thursday. I just think we've got to hold fire, support the Prime Minister, let's get through the processes, get the facts out there, and then people can form a full judgment. 
But in the meantime, of course, it's unsettling for, for colleagues to be going through this. When what they want to be focused on, what the Prime Minister wants us to be focused on, is delivering for the British people and the cost of living challenges, the you know promoting the international trade agenda, which he was doing in India last week, uh, supporting and marshalling the international community in our response to the horrible yeah. events going on in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, so your post bag there isn't filling up with people saying, I think Partygate is an absolute outrage. Is this a Westminster story, basically? Well, no, I don't think it is. And I think in fairness to, to the public, there, are, there is a, a genuine anger which the Prime Minister has um, acknowledged. But I have to say, you know, I was out yesterday. We don't have any local elections this year in, in my constituency area in Bournemouth. So I was out last week in my old stomping ground of Eastleigh, where I stood for Parliament in 2001 and 2005, helping our candidates there uh, for the excellent MP, Paul Holmes. And I have to tell you, Darren, only one person that I spoke to yesterday morning in a couple of hours of canvassing raised this with me, and that was a yeah. lady who felt that there was a sort of a, a witch hunt against the Prime Minister. She was completely... Um, supportive of him. That's not to diminish it, but I think that there are lots of other things that people are worrying about. They're worrying about the energy uh, bills. They're worrying about how they're going to kids get their kids into the choice of school. They're worrying about the health service and how we're going to catch up from the pandemic. There's a whole range of things that people are worried Absolutely. about, and any of them have much more direct impact in their lives um, than this story. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I'm certainly hearing from viewers of GB News that people just want this story to move on because there are real issues, real crises taking place right now that need attention. But the Conservative MP for North West Durham, my part of the world, Richard Holden has actually called on police to reinvestigate an alleged breach of coronavirus rules by the Labour leader, Sakia Starmer, whilst he was in the North East. Is this just tit for tat? Do you think this is a good use of police time? Personally, I think everyone's getting a bit sick of these things. Well, look, again, I can totally get where, where Rich is coming from. I, I listened to a very good interview with Richard earlier this morning. And he's essentially saying, Darren, that there's big question marks over that event that Keir Starmer attended in Durham. It was in a, an office, whether it was a parliamentary office in a constituency or a Labour Party office, I'm not clear, but it's a local MP office. And he was there having drinks and, and a meal, um, socialising with people when he was on a campaign stop. Now, that was, from what I can see, very much against the rules of the time. Now, the police in Durham have decided uh, not, apparently, to look at that. And I think uh, my colleague Richard Holden is right to say perhaps the police should have a look at that in the light of what's happening with the Metropolitan Police. We often hear in politics the public say, well, there's one rule for you lot and one rule for us. There must be one rule, and it must be one rule for everyone, mm -hmm. whether you're leader of the opposition, prime minister of the United Kingdom and leader of the Conservative Party, and dare I say, even a select committee uh, chairman. Everyone needs to be held to the same standard. Yeah, absolutely. The prime minister also didn't rule out a new law which would give UK ministers powers to actually override part of your brief, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, this is the Brexit deal that purports to avoid a hard Irish border by keeping Northern Ireland de facto in the European Union single market for goods. Now, Connor, I don't need to tell you my view on this. I'm quite sure that everyone watching will be aware that I am a big Brexiteer and I don't like the yeah. idea of one part of my country being de facto in the European Union. But this draft legislation could well be published 
in May. Would you, in your role, welcome this? Well, look, Darren, I'm spending, since the, the Prime Minister asked me to come back into government and, and asked me to serve in the Northern Ireland office, I've been the second minister in the 50 years of the existence of the Northern Ireland office, 50 years this year, uh, who is from Northern Ireland. Um, I spent at least two days a week there, uh, and I'm getting out and about a huge amount, listening to businesses, voluntary organisations, visiting schools, uh, community groups, and the like. And I have to tell you, Darren, that the, the, the fundamental problem with the protocol, we could talk in depth about trade diversion, friction at the, at the ports, um, supply of certain goods and so on. Those are all very real. But what is also incredibly real is that a sizable proportion of the population of Northern Ireland feel that the protocol is fundamentally undermining their identity, their self sense of belonging to their country, uh, the United Kingdom. And uh -huh. um, we have got to act on that. The, the, this cannot go on as it is. And in fact, you know, the protocol spoke, and forgive me, I have a, an extract from it here. It spoke of the um, the unions and the UK's shared aim of avoiding controls at the ports and airports of Northern Ireland to the greatest extent possible. It recognised the application of the protocol should impact as little as possible on the everyday life of communities in both Ireland and Northern Ireland that the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland would benefit from participation in the UK's independent trade policy. And it also recognised the importance of maintaining the integral place of Northern Ireland yeah. in the United Kingdom's single market. And it's incredibly hard to justify, Darren, when you go to um, you know, a retail shop, I, I went to one before Christmas um, in Lisbon, and the owner explained to me they used to have multiple uh, varieties of shortbread. Okay, a small thing, shortbread. They now only have one, walkers, because only walkers are big enough to be able to do, to absorb the costs of the certification and the transportation costs and the, and the, the bureaucracy that now comes from moving goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. The other example I cite, if I may, Sainsbury's have no supermarkets in the Irish Republic, yet a consignment of goods destined for Sainsbury's supermarkets in Northern Ireland are subject to the same level of checks as goods moving through Northern Ireland from GB onwards into the Irish Republic and therefore into the European single market. This is not what we thought yeah, we were agreeing exactly, to. Yeah, exactly, Connor. This wasn't part of the Brexit promise, was it? So a lot of unionists will be feeling really, really quite hurt by this, and a lot of them have expressed feelings of betrayal, frankly, from the Prime Minister. Would you go as far as to say people have got a right to feel hurt? by the Conservative government's actions over the protocol? I think they've got a right, Darren, to demand that we fix it. Um, yeah. And it's important, of course, to remember the political crisis we were in uh, at the time that the protocol uh, came about. Uh, we were danger losing the whole Brexit thing altogether because of the mishandling uh, of the government prior to Boris becoming uh, Prime Minister. Look, I was asked a few weeks ago in Northern Ireland a question, and a bloody difficult question, Somebody said to me, could you justify this if this was happening in your constituency in Bournemouth? Yeah. And the honest answer is no, I couldn't. Exactly. And that's why we are absolutely committed to sorting this out for the interests of Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland's place, integral place, in our family of nations in our United Kingdom. Absolutely. Well put, Connor. Now, Connor, you have tweeted about this, so I know you've seen it. There's an article in the Maitland on Sunday, which said that Tories accuse Labour's Angela Rayner of basic instinct ploy, Sharon Stone-esque ploy to distract Boris Johnson. 
He himself has condemned the article. I mean, what did you make of this? Is this a sign of misogyny within the Tory ranks? I thought it was a, a terrible um, article. Uh, I thought, if I may say so, Darren, I thought it was an, uh, a piece of work that um, is a disgrace to your profession, a disgrace to journalism. Um, I suspect it was some, somebody who is a, you know, some non-entity having a drink on the terrace and, and seeking to overstate their influence and knowledge. I can tell you, Darren, as someone who sits often close to the Prime Minister in PMQ, sometimes behind him, some, sometimes uh, nearby if there have been Northern Ireland orals immediately beforehand, the Prime Minister is absolutely focused on the questions coming across from Keir Starmer and other members mm -hmm. of Parliament. The idea that the Prime Minister would be distracted by Angela Rayner is is offensive, and the idea that Angela Rayner would use uh, any aspect of herself in order to do that is offensive to her. Absolutely. Well, Connor Burns, thank you very much for your time today. That was Connor Burns, Tory MP for Bournemouth West and the Minister of State for Northern Ireland. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.